0: Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 15 as we bring our study of this gospel to a close. We've spent the past 13 months or so journeying through the book of Mark and I hope it's been as enriching to your faith as it is has been to mine. I hope you've been able to memorize Isaiah 40 that we've heard uh, rehearsed every week through the video and so tonight we're kind of landing the plane on this gospel. Uh, but before I dive into that, yesterday we had a a wonderful opportunity to gather together and to just dive into this topic of the gospel and race and just had a, a wonderful conversation amongst uh, all who attended and a wonderful time praying with one another and for one another. And, and I want you to just throw it out there that that's not a one and done conversation, that that conversation is to continue as we press into ways in which uh, the gospel produces unity in the midst of our diversity. How do we comfort those who who may be hurting or oppressed, and we want to we want to see how well um, we can reflect the kingdom of God in the world that is and to the world that is. And one of the ways that we do so is by establishing and fostering and cult a culture where. We have unity in the midst of our diversity, and so the gospel and race is an important dynamic that we want to continue exploring together. So press in to conversations with one another. Talk about things that you're wrestling through in light of current events and all that's happening in our country. Explore the gospel together. Be quick to remind one another of of who we are in Christ and, and drive in that direction. The whole conversation got me thinking about one of the biggest influences in my life. Several years ago, I was—I had a season of time where a man by the name of Dr. Robert Smith Jr. poured his life into mine. He's a preaching professor at Beeson Divinity School. He's also a pastor. Uh, or he served as a pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, he's an African American leader in the church, in the in the Black Church here in America, and. And he and I used to connect and talk, and he would just pour into me, and and our conversations oftentimes uh, were revolved around preaching and teaching the Bible, and so. We would talk about the differences, different ethnic, the, the different approaches, different ethnic traditions would take to preaching and teaching the Bible. And I learned so much from him, and he influenced me so much in this, in this dynamic. And, and one of the things he cued me into, and perhaps you're familiar with this, if you've ever gone to a predominantly uh, black church led by black leadership and the preaching and teaching in that context and setting, there, there's a certain approach, a certain cadence, and a certain style that is quite common in that tradition. And it's intentional and it is championed. And and it goes something like this where uh, Dr. Smith says, you know, we we like to start low. He says, we like to start slow and just kind of rise high. But as we rise high and we elevate and we get to the top of where we're at, of where we're going, we want to strike fire. And if you've ever been in a worship gathering in an African-American church or in that setting, it, it, it's a lot of fun when they strike fire and the, and the joy and the enthusiasm and the physical demonstrations of, of their joy in Jesus and their love for one another and the kingdom of God. And so they strike fire. And, and then Dr. Smith says, what we like to do is sit down in the storm. So what you'll find is a lot of times those guys will just walk off stage. Once they reach that crescendo, they strike that fire, they'll just walk away. They're done. You know, they don't land the plane. They don't bring anything down. They don't resolve any. It's just there and that. And it's a fascinating thing to partake in. And, and I share that with you because in some ways that's precisely what Mark does in his gospel. You come to the end of Mark's gospel and it seems as though he has struck fire and he sits down in a storm. He creates some tension that he does not explicitly resolve. He does not land the plane in a way that you and I might expect, especially if you believe, which is what I believe, that Mark intended for his gospel to end at verse 8. Now uh, you'll notice if you're reading an English Standard Version Bible or NIV or any other modern translation, you'll see that the text does keep going after verse eight. You have verse nine all the way down to verse forty, and those modern translations usually put those put that passage in brackets. And the reason for that is because scholars of the New Testament have been exploring the manuscripts and and. Older manuscripts of the New Testament have been recovered, they've been researched, they've been studied, and many scholars believe that that last portion wasn't necessarily a part of Mark's original document, that it, was, that it made its way in later, and if I don't know how that lands on you in this setting, but uh, hopefully uh, you'll find something helpful. I wrote this article on the ending of Mark. And we have copies of this on the table in the foyer for you to take and to read, and it kind of explains why that understanding of Mark's gospel isn't problematic. To the reliability of the New Testament, if anything, it should reinforce our understanding of the New Testament's credibility and all that it is that we believe as Christians, as it relates to God's word and the Bible. So we have copies of this on the table in the foyer for you to grab and take, and and you can read about that portion and how it came to be and what it's all about. And then uh, we'll also provide this in a digital copy in this week's emails and those types of things. But For our purposes, we're going to land the plane in verse 8. And if you end there, uh, it might strike you as odd. Because verse 8 is a a verse where you're wondering, you you just want some resolution. You you want Mark to clarify some things. But verse 8, listen to what he says. It says, And they went out, referring to the two Marys, and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It seems to be like this, this tense moment of, of fear and unbelief, and you're left scratching your head, wondering, Mark, why would you end your gospel that way? He ends his gospel in a storm, unresolved tension. Now, If you like movies and books like I do, you you know that endings can be quite interesting. And endings are probably the hardest part of any book or movie or sitcom to write. And different people like different types of endings sitcoms in the 80s and 90s. They, they love to resolve problems perfectly in about 23 minutes. Uh, they create a problem and they solve it. They're at the end and everybody goes home happy. Some people love that but when you turn the corner and you get into post-modernity at the turn of the 21st century things begin to change. You begin to see a different accent placed on sitcoms and dramas and movies. Uh, you get something like The Sopranos that doesn't really resolve the ending very smoothly. You're left scratching your head wondering oh, what's going on? Like, ha- What happened? What 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 what's the deal? Or you read some, or you watch one of Christopher Nolan's films like Inception, and you're like, what? What did I just watch? I just spent twenty bucks to walk out confused, and you're wondering what is that about? Well, there's some dynamic where um, Mark uh, is certainly Mark's not a postmodern storyteller, uh, but he is a good storyteller, and I think he ends his gospel in verse eight in a way that in a way that's intended to evoke a response from readers it's as though Mark has come to this point, he drops the mic, and the question is, who's going to pick it up again? Who's going to keep telling the story? Who's going to go forward? And Proclaim Christ crucified and risen who's going to pick up where Mark left off and carry the gospel forward into the future who's going to bring the story of the Son of God into the world this is how Mark ends it with this tension of well does, any, does does anything good come out of this? Do the Marys go forth and tell the disciples do the disciples hear about Christ being alive and and what's going to unfold from that now we know from the other gospels that they eventually do get over their fear and they do go and tell the disciples the disciples are restored and then released into, into the world with this story, but this res- the effect Mark intends for us to have, I believe, when you come to the end of this story is wondering, okay, am I, am I going to be the one to pick it up and go forward? Am I going to be the one to carry this story into the future? There was one commentator who brought some clarity on this. This is what he says. He says, it is appropriate to a gospel which is traded heavily in paradox to end on such a paradoxical note, with an appearance of the risen Jesus announced but not narrated, and the central message of the Christian gospel entrusted to a group of demoralized women who are afraid to say anything about it. So we hear much of Mark's open ended story which leaves it for readers to work out the implications for themselves. They have in the empty tomb and the young man's message all the raw materials they need to do so. And Mark is not going to spell it out for them. Then he says this, that is a task left for the preacher. Like, gee, thanks, that's great, all right? So that's the task apparently left up to me. I get to try to unpack that. But here's what I think going on. Mark ends his gospel in a way that's intended to invoke a response from readers, from people like you and I who are interacting with this material, who have been listening into this gospel, and the question comes, how are we going to respond? How will we respond to Jesus, the Son of God? How are we going to respond to the life that Jesus lived, the death that Jesus died, and his resurrection from the grave? What are we going to do? And I want to offer to you three ways I think we, as followers of Jesus, should respond to the Son of God, His crucifixion and resurrection. One of these reasons, however, is to encourage those of you who are followers of Jesus, but I know some of you perhaps aren't. You haven't drawn a conclusion about Jesus yet. You don't know what you believe about His life and His death and His resurrection. You consider yourself perhaps on a journey. You're a seeker. You're a skeptic. You're you're somewhat critical of Christianity. And I want to really encourage you to think about this first uh, reason this first response that we need to give to this gospel and that first response is this we need to let the evidence of the resurrection speak to you let the evidence of the resurrection speak to you now if you have ever had conversations with many people about Christianity and about the resurrection of Jesus typically there are three responses given uh, against or trying to in an effort to discredit the resurrection and to discredit the Christian faith One of which is to say that Jesus was a self-proclaimed Messiah who failed. There were many Messiahs who were self-proclaimed before Jesus stepped up and did all the things that he did, and they all died and they all failed. Jesus is just lumped in that same category. He was no one special, no one unique in that regard. But then others would say, well, the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, All you're reading are a bunch of myths and legends. They're not reliable historical documents. They're just myths and legends. But then there are others who might say a third uh, objection to the resurrection is that ancient people were just naive and gullible. They were not as enlightened as we are in the 21st century. They were prone to believe something as audacious and ridiculous as somebody coming back from death. And so first century people were just naive. They were gullible, but that's not us. We're 21st century. We are enlightened. We are educated. We we know technology and science in ways that perhaps they did not. And so we think that at times anyone who would believe that Jesus rose from the grave is just naive or gullible. And to that, I would offer you three evidences to consider. We need to let the evidence of the resurrection speak to us, the first of which is this. If that's some objections maybe that you've held in your understanding of the gospel or maybe objections that you've heard, let me encourage you to consider the sudden birth and rapid rise of the church. Now, if Jesus was a self-proclaimed Messiah who failed, then the movement he tried to start would have stopped with him. You see, one of the things about all the self-proclaimed messiahs that preceded Jesus, when they died, their movements ended. Their movements stopped. Nobody carried their movements forward. But when you come to Jesus and the story of Jesus and the story of, church, of the church, you find that not to be the case. That within 200 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, do you understand that Christianity consumed the known world and actually took over the Roman Empire? It's a remarkable and rapid rise of a group of people who who had nothing going for them before Jesus was resurrected. And when you think about the history of the church, the presence of the church in those early centuries, it is mind-blowing that they would come to be and then come to exert the type of influence that they did. And historians would admit, uh, many historians admit that the Biggest problem they have as it relates to Christianity is explaining the birth of the church. Where did this group come from? How did they gain so much influence? If Jesus did not rise from the grave, what they did was, would have been utterly impossible. But since the church did rise rapidly, it did birth onto the scene, it has to have been tied to something. And we understand from our perspective on the gospel, the book of Acts, is that it happened because Jesus actually rose from the grave. A guy by the name of N.T. Wright would put it this way. He would say, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. And so if you're someone who believed Jesus to be a failed, self-proclaimed Messiah, you have a huge problem in explaining where the church came from and how it got the influence it did in a very short amount of time. But then the second thing I would encourage you to consider is the eyewitness testimony of historical events. Those who would like to point out the Gospels, they read like myths or legends. They're not really reading the Gospels in ways that are responsible or credible. Because if you read through the documents of the Gospels, you're not going to read something that sounds like myth or legend. You're going to read documents that read like historical accounts given by eyewitnesses. We've said this as we've journeyed through the book of Mark. We've seen how he's dropped a name here and there. And he's not just dropping names because he remembers names. When he drops a name in his Gospel, he's citing his source for the information he's communicating. This is why you see Peter's name popping up all the time. Because Mark, his primary source, it seems and we believe, came from Peter. And so you see his name littered around. But Peter wasn't his only source. And this is really interesting when you consider that when you get into chapter 15, Peter's name doesn't really come up except for uh, that one time in verse 7. And we'll talk about why that is in a moment. But instead, since he's the reason for that is that Peter wasn't around, at the crucifixion and he wasn't around at the resurrection he was nowhere to be found and so peter was no longer mark's source for what went down so what does peter what does mark do well he cites other sources 15 chapter look at verse 21 he says about the soldiers compelling a passerby Simon of cyrene who was coming in from the country the father of alexander and rufus who cares about alexander and rufus they add nothing to this story Unless Mark is doing what all ancient historians used to do, which is cite the sources of their information in the text that they were writing. See, if you read, if you happen to grab the article on your way out on the ending of Mark's gospel, you're going to see how I cite my sources. I cite them like you cite them. I I follow Kate Turabian and MLA and all that kind of stuff. Well, Mark did not have any of that. Ancient historians didn't follow this type of pattern. Instead, they had another process, and that process concerned inserting the names of their sources within the documents that they wrote. In other words, as somebody read Mark's gospel in that first generation, they could have gone to Rufus. They could have gone to Alexander. They could have gone to Mary Magdalene. They could have gone to the other Mary mentioned in the text and asked them, hey, is this how it went down? Did, did this really happen? They could have gone and checked the sources that Mark is citing. So Mark's gospel and all the gospels read like eyewitness testimony of historical events. You can hear these names and then cross-examine them, pun intended. Let that one kind of hang out there for a minute. You could cross-examine the the sources. That's for Corey, actually. He likes puns. Now, uh, so you have these still-living witnesses of historical events. But here's another fascinating dynamic of the Gospels is that all four Gospels share this in common. Every writer, the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, are women, Now, if you were making up a myth or a legend that you wanted to have credibility, something that could pick up steam in your culture and influence things, you would not, sorry ladies, in the first century, you would not cite women as your credible sources. Women were not viewed too highly in the first century. They were marginalized. They were oppressed. Their testimony was not welcomed in court and so if any of the gospel writers wanted to uh, really pick up steam with but with the story they're making up they wouldn't have selected women to be the people that they are in the gospels but the reason they're recorded that way in the gospels is because that's how it went down women were the first witnesses of the resurrection and so that's how they tell the story they're telling something that actually happened a certain way in human history there was a guy by the name of Kelsus in the 2nd century, a Greek philosopher, and, and he was somebody who didn't like Christianity. And one of the reasons why he didn't like Christianity was because the story of the resurrection that came from women. And I'm going to share his words with you, and it's very important that you understand that these are his words, not my words, so I don't get in trouble. But Kelsus, this pagan philosopher in the 2nd century, said this. He said, we all know that women are hysterical referring to the gossip at the empty tomb, meaning what the Marys would go and tell others later, as they were just gossiping. They were hysterical. They, they were grieving the death of this Jesus character, but he really didn't come alive. And so they, he, he blasts Christianity because it came, or the original witnesses to the resurrection were, were women. And then you consider the, char- the quality of character that one of these women held, Mary Magdalene, you consider her story. If women are already kind of not very credible in the first century, a woman who was formerly demon-possessed with seven demons, according to Luke chapter 8, she goes down even further on that notch of credibility. But yet the gospel writers are saying Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. She had this encounter. This other Mary, who could have been Jesus' mom, may have been a different Jesus. Scholars aren't quite sure exactly who that second Mary is. But both of them went, and they told the story eventually and eventually So you get eyewitness testimony of historical events. And then that third evidence I just want to throw out there. To those who might say that ancient people were naive or gullible, you've got to consider the supernatural shift in resistant worldviews. Do you understand that three times in Mark's gospel, we have read about Jesus predicting his crucifixion and resurrection, saying he's going to die and then he's going to rise again. He's going to die, he's going to rise again. He's going to die, he's going to rise again. Three times Jesus has predicted that. Now, You would think that if the disciples were gullible and naive and if believing the resurrection would really happen, if that was true and if that was sinking in, you'd think they would be the ones going to the empty tomb. And you would think the people going to the empty tomb wouldn't come there expecting Jesus to be dead. But that's exactly what happens. Joseph of Arimathea, what does he do? He, he goes, he asks Pilate to take Jesus' body and to bury Jesus in a tomb, and he wraps him up in a linen. He prepares the corpse for burial. He's not expecting Jesus to come back to life. The women who go to the tomb, it says that they spent a lot of money on spices that were, that were going to be applied to the corpse of Jesus. They were not expecting Jesus to come back to life, even though he said he would. And so you have these features that no person was expecting Jesus to rise from the grave, First century people were not naive. They were not gullible. To say otherwise is to slide into the error that C.S. Lewis describes as chronological snobbery. You're a chronological snob if you think people of the first century are more gullible or more naive than you are. People believe bizarre things today. We're We're not any different existentially from the people in the first century. We just have a little more technology and a little more history. But You have this moment where they're going these people are going to the, to the tomb, but none of them are expecting Jesus to be alive. And the resistant worldviews are apparent when you consider how Greeks and Romans viewed death. You see, Greeks and Romans did not want a resurrection to happen. Greeks and Romans believed the body to be defiled and undesirable. They hated the physical body. They liked the spirit. They liked the soul. So their worldview was very much dualistic. It was like when you watch The Simpsons and a character on The Simpsons dies and their flesh just kind of falls down and their spirit soars up to heaven. That's how they viewed things, and that's how they wanted things to be. But then the Jewish people, they certainly did not believe that someone would resurrect in the middle of human history the Jewish people believed in a general resurrection of the dead at the end of time, but nobody thought someone, someone would do so in the middle of human history, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Their worldviews were biased against the resurrection. They did not easily believe that Jesus had come back from the dead. And so you want to consider the evidence. You want to let the evidence of the resurrection speak to you, how Uh, the sudden birth and rapid rise of the church, eyewitness testimony of historical events, uh, this supernatural shift in resistant worldviews, the fact that anyone did come to believe the resurrection happened was a miracle. So you got to let the evidence of the resurrection speak to you. Now I know that some of you, I said this earlier, some of you may be searching for truth. You love to identify yourself as being in process or on a journey, and I respect that. I love that to some degree, and And I hope you would continue your search here within the Hallows Church community. That your search for truth, your journey to discover what is real, what is meaningful, what is purposeful, what life is all about. We want you exploring that here in the context of this community. But let me encourage you against the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age in which you live. You see, we live in a world and a culture that says it's very cool to seek, but it is never cool to find. We want everyone to have an open mind. We just think the open mind should just be perpetually open. But as G.K. Chesterton once said, that the point of having an open mind is so that your open mind can close on something solid. When you find something true, when you find something credible, when you find something right, your mind needs to close on it. Now that doesn't make you a bigot or a jerk or by it just means you found what you were looking for, this search, this journey. And we as followers of Jesus believe we have that in Christ, that his resurrection actually happened in human history. It's a fact and it, it occurred and we are banking our lives on it. You see, if you don't land somewhere in your search for truth, you'll never end up living anywhere. And that type of pace is unsustainable. That type of pace will ultimately choke life out of you. So keep searching, keep seeking. But when you find it, when you discover who Jesus is and you come to believe in the gospel, then put your feet on it. Close your mind on it land somewhere and start living there. This is where we want to go as we consider the evidence of the resurrection. But it's more than that. It's not just evidence that we talk about in our faith. We're not just people who believe in objective truth. We are a subjective people. We understand that subjective truth is unavoidable on some level uh, to some degree. And so we don't just talk about the evidence of the resurrection. We talk about the grace of redemption and how that grace is transforming us. And so we, in the, as we trust in the resurrection of Jesus, we recognize what that means for our redemption, and the grace of that begins to affect us, it begins to change us, it begins to have an impact. You see this in the story when you drop down to verse, let's just look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 16. There you have these two Marys showing up at the empty tomb. And there they find uh, a young man in verse 5 sitting on the right side. Again, that's a detail that speaks to the credibility of their their eyewitness testimony. Uh, The fact that the man was sitting on the right side, that's an irrelevant detail unless it speaks to that's what they saw. He was on the right side of the tomb sitting there. And then it goes on. uh, Dressed in a white robe, so this is an angelic messenger, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Get this, just as he told you. I love this passage because here you have this messenger uh, proclaiming the resurrection to these women and encouraging them to go and to rally the disciples, including Peter, these disciples who had recently failed miserably to obey Jesus and to trust Jesus. All the disciples scattered. None of the disciples are there at the tomb. Peter denied Jesus three times. And this messenger saying, even get Peter, bring him. He needs to benefit from this story as well. And when these women, although they don't go at the end of Mark's gospel, we do know that they do in the other gospels, they eventually get over their fear and they go and get the disciples. When they go to them, they don't go and say, well, uh, you need to go meet with Jesus so that he can settle the score with you. You need to go and meet with Jesus so to see if he might reinstate you in, in being the people he called you to be. No, when they go, including Peter, including Peter, they're going to discover that their sin is forgiven. This is the grace of redemption. The fact that the disciples and Peter are brought back into the presence of the resurrected Jesus, that they're going to get to meet with Christ, it reminds them that their sin is forgiven. C.S. Lewis would say the earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single theological doctrine, redemption. And redemption means sin is forgiven. I love the way Timothy Keller describes this dynamic where he talks about how when Jesus died on the cross, he died to pay our ransom, right? He died for our sin. He died in our place. He says if Jesus' death was the payment for sin, then his resurrection is the receipt. His resurrection tells us the transaction is complete. Our lives have been purchased by Jesus, and Jesus does not return that which he buys he is, his resurrection is our redemption because his resurrection being our redemption means our sin is forgiven. This is why the first thing that this angelic messenger, this young man dressed in white would say to the women, uh, he is risen, which is a great phrase, but it's not the most precise phrase. Sure, Jesus is risen, he is risen, but a more precise translation would be he was raised, right? The Father raised Jesus, Because the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice. He accepted the payment for our sin. Our sin is forgiven. That's the grace of redemption. That's what the disciples, including Peter, who had radically denied Jesus, they're going to discover this. And you and I need to let our hearts grab that as well. Our sin is forgiven. And when we consider the price that was paid and the acceptance of that price for our redemption, it should melt our hearts because those who are forgiven much love much. What effect should the resurrection of Christ and our redemption have on us? We should become the most loving people on the planet. We should love God passionately. We should love one another well. We should love our neighbors like crazy. Those who are forgiven much love much. This is why we talk so much about the gospel. This is why we as a church are honest about sin and the need for forgiveness, because if you recognize yourself as a forgiven sinner, that should ultimately melt your heart so that you become the most loving type of person that can ever be. Peter would discover this. So much so that if you read, he would write a couple letters that we have in the New Testament, 1 and 2 Peter, and he would write them years later after he would meet with Jesus in Galilee and he would be restored and he would come to know that his sin is forgiven. He would spend uh, decades meditating on that reality, letting that grace transform his life so that when he would sit down and he would make his contribution to the New Testament, you read his words and you see so much grace in his letters, so much humility in his letters, so much love in his letters. You see a man who's been transformed by the grace of redemption, who's had several decades just basking in the reality of the resurrection and enjoying this dynamic of redemption that our sin is forgiven so that when he writes, he writes as a man who loves God and loves people and loves the world with incredible grace and incredible humility. So we want to let the evidence of the resurrection speak to us, but ultimately we want to move to having the grace of redemption transform us. And when you see your sin is forgiven, you will also discover that your Savior is faithful. Notice what is said in verse 7. After they go, after they are to go until the disciples in Peter and meet with Jesus in Galilee, uh, the angel says, There you will see Jesus just as he told you. Just as he told you. Your Savior is faithful. Everything he said about the kingdom of God is true. The last three years you guys have spent journeying with Jesus have not been in vain. Jesus is true. He's trustworthy. He's the faithful Savior. And so this is to explode in their hearts in ways that would affect them deeply and affect them for all eternity, that Jesus does what he says you know, in those moments as we journey through life in a fallen world, there are times when we fail Jesus, right? There are times when we do commit sins and we do deny Jesus. There are times when the world in which we live in actually fail us and the world doesn't do for us what we hope the world would do for us. What do you do in those moments? What do you do when you feel like a failure? What do you do when the world has failed you? How'd, whose voice will you listen to then? Whose promises will you trust in those moments? Well, the grace of redemption says that your Savior is faithful. His word is true and trustworthy. So how do you respond to your failures? How do you respond to a world that fails you consistently? You trust the word of Jesus. You don't put your faith in yourself. You don't put your faith in this world. You put your faith in the Savior who is faithful. And when you find your sin forgiven and your Savior faithful, all of a sudden you you're swept up with this hope that is unshakable. You begin to live a hopeful life and not a pessimistic life. You begin to live a life that is, that is different and distinct, that is hopeful. There was a woman by the name of Joni Erickson Tata. You read her quote earlier. I don't know if you know much about her story, but she's a, a follower of Jesus. She writes a lot of books. She's a, she, uh, is a radio host, but she's also a quadriplegic. She's a woman who, when she was 18 years old, had a diving accident and, and br- her body was broken. And she spent her whole life in a wheelchair from that point on, paralyzed from the neck down. You can imagine the, the type of uh, days that she would have just thinking and processing her life and thinking and processing the gospel. Now, she tells a story about going to a conference where you had all these Christians gathered together and they were sitting under teaching and they were singing together. And the speaker got up and actually told everybody to get on their knees and she's sitting over there in her wheelchair, and she's, she can't do that. And so she's processing what he's telling everybody to do, and she's thinking about how she can't do that. And this is what she would write, reflecting back on that. She says, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump and dance, kick and do acrobats. And although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on tiptoe, there's something I plan to do that may please him more. If possible, somewhere, sometime before the party gets going, sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrection legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus and afterward I shall spring to my feet, stretch out my arms and shout out to anyone within earshot of the whole universe, worthy is the Lamb. That's a woman whose hope is unshakable. That's a woman whose life is being transformed by the grace of redemption. She would go on to say, I can't wait for the day when I'm given my brand new glorified body. I'm going to stand up, stretch, dance, kick, do aerobics, comb my own hair, blow my own nose. And what is so poignant is that I'll finally be able to wipe my own tears, but get this, I won't need to. Because the Bible tells us that the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, that God will personally wipe away all of our tears. Even when she can wipe her own tears, she won't have to. That's unshakable hope. That's a person being transformed by the grace of redemption. Her hope is unshakable. I hope, I pray, I I plead that you're your heart is being transformed by the grace of redemption, that you're basking in the fact that your sin is forgiven. You're basking in the fact that your Savior is faithful and that an unshakable hope is swelling up within you in ways that are very similar to that. But then the third thing we want to respond to this gospel with is we let the evidence of the resurrection speak to us. We want to let the grace of redemption transform us. But then lastly, we want to let the mission of the gospel to consume us. If this is true, if the resurrection happened, if redemption is a reality, then the mission of the gospel should consume us. This is the tension we're left in with verse 8. You've got to sense the tension between fear and faithfulness when you get there and you find they've had this experience of thinking about the resurrection of Jesus, but notice they, they leave the tomb, they're trembling and astonished, and they say nothing to anyone, at least at first, because they were afraid. You've got to sense that tension between fear and faithfulness. The resurrection does not magically dispel fear and cowardice, suddenly transforming fallible human characters into faithful disciples. No, faithful discipleship arises as we follow Jesus, not as we just think about following Jesus, but when we begin to move, even in the midst of our fear, we still act on our faith. You've got to sense the tension between fear and faithfulness. And if you don't sense it, if you try to solve that tension too quickly, you're going to be surprised when fear swells up within you and you can't talk about Jesus, You're going to be surprised when fear swells up within you and you don't want to speak about truth because it might hurt somebody's feelings or it might not come across as as loving as you intended it to. If, If you're not thinking about the tension and sensing it, you're going to be surprised by it and ultimately you'll be paralyzed and the mission of the gospel will not consume you. You will not participate in what Jesus is inviting you to participate in. So you want to sense that tension these women are sensing it in verse 8. But again, we know from the other gospels that they, weren't, they didn't live in fear forever. Eventually, they started moving their feet. They started moving towards the disciples. They went and told Peter and John, and everyone came and met with Jesus in Galilee, and the world began to change. As you sense the tension between fear and faithfulness, then you begin to savor the transforming power of what we preach and what it means. Sure, they were fearful in verse 8, but as they thought about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, that, that began to do something within them so that they become the first bold witnesses of the gospel in the world. And this hope would push them into doing things, even knowing that when they go and tell the disciples, hey, Jesus is alive, some of those disciples would probably probably look at them as though they were hysterical or gossips. They risked being misunderstood. They risked being misinterpreted. They risked being slandered as incredible witnesses. They, They risked all of that because they started savoring the transforming power of the gospel. So we want to let the mission of the gospel consume us. Joni Eareckson Tata would say one more thing about this dynamic. At the end of the portion that I read earlier, she would go on to say this. I can still hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me, or someone who has cerebral palsy, is brain injured, or has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, new hearts, and new minds. Only in the message of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. We want to savor the transforming power of what we preach. Understanding that hurting people find incredible hope in the reality of Christ crucified and risen. So let's let the mission of the gospel consume us. Let it become our passion. Let it become our ultimate burden in the world. But one of the things I'm worried about as a pastor is that mission creep may be stepping in Mission creep may be rising in your minds and your hearts because there are so many things jockeying for our attention, so many things jockeying for our affections, so many things pulling us in so many different directions. I wonder how often we are actually talking about the story of Jesus. How often are we picking up the mic and carrying this story, story forward? Have we allowed mission creep to creep into our discipleship so that the mission of Jesus isn't a priority, it isn't a passion, it isn't... An active, real thing happening and occurring in you and through you, in me and through me. And so we as a church, if the mission of the gospel is going to consume us, we have to resist with everything that we are, mission creep. We are ambassadors of Christ. We've been entrusted with the story to tell. This story is about the resurrection. This story is about redemption. This story is to consume our lives for as long as we have in this world. And so let's be people who are consumed by the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Let's not allow mission creep to pull us away from the main thing so that we lose sight of testifying to, hey, Christ died for you. Christ rose for you. Do you understand that when the disciples looked at the resurrected Jesus, they got a glimpse of their future? Jesus was showing them, this is where your life is heading. One day you're going to rise like me. And every time you and I engage in the mission of Jesus, we are giving people a glimpse of their future. We are showing them, look, you can encounter a relationship with the risen Christ, and that relationship is going to be consummated one day so that you stand forgiven and fully transformed in his presence. Do you understand when we allow the mission to consume us, the mission of the gospel. We are projecting to people. We, we are basically bringing the future to bear on the present. And when you bring the future to bear on the present, hope rises, right? Lives begin to change. We are lifted up out of the muck and the mire of a fallen world, and we begin to love one another and love our neighbors and love our Savior in ways that it's—it's it's transformative. You know, and one of the most telling passages in the New Testament on the resurrection of Jesus is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul would go through that chapter explaining the resurrection and what it means for you and I, and then he would come to the end of that that passage. And in verse 58, he would tell the church, okay, this is true, this is all coming, this is what's real you now have the privilege of living into that reality and conveying that reality to the world in which you live now. So he would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Give yourself to the mission of the gospel. Give yourself to the reality of his resurrection and the redemption of your life. And no matter what you do in that direction, none of it will be in vain. It all counts. It all makes an impact. And we, we trust that, we believe that, and we press into that as the mission of the gospel begins consuming our lives. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just consider some of the things that we've discussed over these past few moments. As you think about Mark coming to a close and, and how, this Mark is in, how this ending is intended to evoke a response in you, I want you to pray if you consider how you can let the evidence of the resurrection speak to you. Perhaps you're someone who's wrestling with kind of the, the objective credibility of our faith. Well, let the evidence of the resurrection speak to you. I can refer you to other resources, things that you can study and read to, to explore that dynamic. Or those of you who are already following Christ, and maybe you're just discouraged and disheartened in this moment, would you let the grace of redemption continue to transform you? Would you consider over these next few moments how your sin is forgiven, how your Savior is faithful, how your hope is unshakable? And then would we all as a church, would we all as a church as we step up into this fifth year marker next week, would we continue to let the mission of the gospel to consume us, that we would be a blessing to this city in a myriad of kingdom advancing ways? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please work in us and upon us as we think through these truths, as we respond to your gospel, I pray that your grace would abound and that we would respond in ways that would honor you, we would respond in ways that would humble us, and we would respond in ways that would help many people in many ways, all throughout this city and ultimately around the world, in Jesus' name, amen.